Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on this week's show, a mom in Santa Rosa fights for her kindergartner to be able to use medical marijuana at school. Are you going to let a sick child take her medication so that she can go to school, or are you going to just keep people at home? And the reason people line up at a famous deli in Los Angeles. Gazing at the cream pie and the cheesecake and the potato salad and the pickled pig's feet and other delights under the deli counter glass as he inches slowly toward his carver. But first, the shock of landing in a migrant shelter in Tijuana after decades of living in California. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We've been bringing you lots of stories about immigration and how deportations are affecting families here in California. But we rarely hear about what happens to people once they're newly deported to a country like Mexico. My colleague Farida Javala Romero covers immigration for KQED and for the California Report. And she visited a migrant shelter in Tijuana to hear from recent deportees and to get their stories. Farida, what was the shelter like and what was the feeling when you were there? There were a lot of men kind of just milling around this courtyard. And a lot of them turned out were recent deportees, like they had just been deported that day or the day before. And the feeling I got from them is that many were still in shock, especially people who had lived in the U.S. for a really long time. Um, I was peeking into this room, and there was a psychologist there guiding them through a meditation and breathing exercises. And uh, so there was this circle of about a dozen men. And, you know, and they'll look like kind of burly, like they work outside, you know, and they're in jeans and T-shirts and they're all laying down the floor in a circle. And she's guiding them through some breathing um, exercises to give them tools to try to bring down their stress. Because they basically lost everything. Yeah. One of the first people I met was Ricardo Padron Navarrete. Ricardo lived in the Bay Area for about 22 years, like half of his life. He has two children. He uh, had some issues with drugs, got a misdemeanor. He is an example of this broader group of people that the Trump administration is uh, arresting and deporting. It's people without violent felonies, but they're still getting caught up in immigration detention and then being deported. From one day to another, you know, I was in Tijuana with no family, with no money, with no job, and with nothing because I didn't even have my birth certificate from here. No, I didn't have an, an ID. I was nobody. I mean, 
like, I didn't have no identity. He lived in the Bay Area for a long time, but he decided he didn't want to fight his deportation because he was worried about having to spend the time it would take to fight his case uh, in, in detention. If I wanted to fight for my case, I, want, I had to be in custody, and I don't want to be in jail, you know. It's going to be such a waste time, you know, to be in custody. And then at the end of the day, they're just going to tell you, you know what, there's nothing you can do about it. Goodbye. So was there anything that showed you that Ricardo felt at all optimistic about his situation? Yeah, you know, I got to be there for dinner at the shelter. And basically it was this big room with long wooden tables. And the men there were filling up plastic plates with beans and rice and tortillas. They were all just, you know, gathered there and saying hi to each other. Um, And Ricardo actually volunteered to say grace. He's basically, you know, giving thanks for the food that they have, the people that made the food. And it just, I had this feeling that they were, you know, taking a moment to be grateful for the things that they do have in their lives. You also met a lot of other people at the shelter, including somebody who was seeking asylum from Guatemala. Yeah, her name is Luna Guzman, and she identifies as transgender. And she told me about some of the threats, the really serious stuff she had to face in Guatemala. Me mandan amenazas en Facebook que me van a matar, que van a matar a mi familia. So there she's saying that she was getting death threats uh, to her and her family, and she felt she couldn't go to the police because of corruption. Uh, She actually worked as a volunteer firefighter in her town, but there was a lot of discrimination she just couldn't take. She says people threw water and rocks at her on the street. So is that when she tried to flee and come to the U.S.? Yes. She decided to um, take on a very dangerous trek through Mexico, riding atop cargo trains uh, called La Bestia, with no money, with no food sometimes. And when she finally made it to Tijuana, she walked to the San Isidro port of entry and presented herself to border officials there and asked for asylum. And she basically told them that she wasn't coming to the U.S. to get rich. Uh, She just wanted to live with a little bit more dignity. So what happened to Luna? She was detained at the Otay Mesa detention facility near San Diego for eight months while her case was decided by an immigration judge. And she didn't have an immigration attorney. A friend in detention helped her fill out her asylum application form And at the end, the judge rejected her her claim. And so she said it felt like the world stopped for her and she burst into tears and that the immigration judge told her that that wasn't going to convince her. Was she held in the men's or the women's detention facility? She was held in the men's and uh, she said she, you know, inmates beat her up while she was there. And there was also some sexual harassment that she had to go through. So, Farida, you cover immigration a lot. What do you think you're going to take away from this experience of visiting people in the migrant shelter in Tijuana? 
Well, I'd never really spoken to people before the day they were deported or a couple of days after they were deported. And um, I think it just put things in perspective for me about the stress that they're going through, but also what they're leaving behind in the U.S. I mean, most of these people were really parents. A lot of parents who I talked to were really worried about their children left behind. And I think you get a sense of the distance that's now between these family members. Farida, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Sasha. Farida Javala Romero's dispatches from the migrant shelter in Tijuana are going to be airing next week on the California Report's morning service. So tune in or check it out on the California Report podcast. And now we head to Los Angeles. It's a city that's constantly morphing into something new, but there are a few sacred, iconic things in my hometown that have remained the same for decades. And this one, you can eat. There are so few places in Los Angeles where you can get the same dish that your grandfather and your great-grandfather and your ancestors had at Philippe's. You can get that sandwich, and it's just it's beautiful and simple and, and authentic and real and great. Reporter Peter Gilstrap brings us the story of the sandwich that's been a fixture of L.A. cuisine and beyond since the end of World War One. It's part of our series Golden State Plate, bringing us the backstory of iconic recipes that got their start here in California. Philippe's is on the corner of Alameda and Ord Street, just down from Union Station on the southern edge of Chinatown here in Los Angeles. It's a blue-collar area bordered by train tracks, the Terminal Annex post office building, and small shops in humble brick-and-mortar structures that go back to the 1920s. At night, the streets quiet down as a blanket of noir descends upon the scene, but in daylight hours, things are bustling. People are working, and the no-frills French dip is a working person's lunch. A lot of the same people that are buying that sandwich today are the types of people that would have bought it a century ago. Chris Nichols is associate editor of Los Angeles Magazine. He's been writing about all manner of L.A. culture for over 20 years. You get city employees and workers, and I just appreciate that you see garbage men and you see people in suits and you see um, just every walk of life coming in and out of that place and and enjoying the history and the authenticity and the, the realness of it. Step inside this cavernous former machine shop and it's like a time machine. It feels like an older Los Angeles. There's a bank of wooden phone booths, glowing neon clocks on the walls, sawdust covering the floors, and long communal tables where customers perch on stools, often eating next to strangers. There's no music in the place, just the easy ebb and flow of conversation. There are no waiters either. You line up at the deli counter where a row of women in classic waitress uniforms wait to take and make your order. Well, first I'll get two uh, beef dips, double dips. One with Swiss. You get a pickle, quarter. These two French dips on this Monday morning will be among the 19,000 sandwiches served up this week alone. They've been doing this for a while. We were open for 10 years until the French dip was actually created, and it was an accident. That's fourth-generation managing partner Andrew Binder, who says he literally grew up in the restaurant. In 1927, his great-grandfather bought the place from Hippolyte Philippe Mathieu, 
who opened it in 1908. Philippe was carving a sandwich and the French roll fell into the pan drippings of some meats that were being roasted and the customer was in a hurry. We used to think it was a policeman, but we were actually told by a relative of Philippe that it was a fireman. Um, that customer left, came back the next day with some friends and requested the sandwich being dipped. So that really is the birth of the French dip. My name is Gloria Camacho, and I've been here 25 years. And what do you do here? I'm a, considered a carver. We slice the bread, we slice the lamb, pickle. Is it just women that are carvers? Yes. <laughs> we like the guys in the back. <laughs> Why is that? I mean, you're better looking than the men. Ah, uh, you're funny. Uh, I don't really know why, but it ain't broken, so let's not fix it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for customers who aren't French dip veterans, Camacho reveals the different ways to dip your beef, your lamb, your pork, your ham, your turkey, or pastrami sandwich. They ask us, what does it mean, uh, dip? It just means how much moisture you want on your roll. You can get dry, single, double, wet, meat on the side, the roll on the side, cut in half, cut it in thirds, for here to go. So there's a couple of options. Back in the kitchen, Andrew Binder stirs a steaming vat of meat. So what are we looking at here? We are looking at a 50-gallon kettle that has a traditional stock, it starts with beef bones, we add vegetables and spices, and it's going for over 24 hours a day. And so it's an ongoing cycle. Then we'll drain it and strain it and combine it with all the drippings in the roasting pans, and that's what we dip your sandwich in the next day. Back on the floor, the lines are growing as breakfast transitions into lunch. Eric Woods is in the queue, gazing at the cream pie and the cheesecake and the potato salad and the pickled pig's feet and other delights just under the deli counter glass as he inches slowly toward his carver. It's a weight he's used to. I've been coming here since I've been like 10 years old. You know, I've been, I'm 53 now. I just like the atmosphere. My grandpa used to bring me and I just like to sit in here and how it's just open and everybody can sit and enjoy a family atmosphere with no headache. The tradition of Philippe's French dip is deep and vast, but they're not the only place in town claiming the sacred birthright. Cole's, an upscale downtown L.A. restaurant, also opened since 1908, maintains the sandwich had its first odd Jews baptism in their kitchen. I have sort of my own theory as to why Philippe's might be the originator as opposed to, to Cole's. Again, Chris Nichols. It's simply that Hippolyte Philippe Mathieu, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, was born in France, and Harry Cole was a German. So maybe that's why it's a French dip, because it came from a Frenchman. It's not exactly a Beatles versus Stones rivalry. And really, what does it matter who came up with it first? One fact is certain. The sturdy, humble French dip is a proud creation of the City of Angels. For the California Report, I'm Peter Gilstrap in Los Angeles. Now it's time for another in our series, The Long Run, about women candidates running for political office for the first time this election season. We're going to meet Mayelle Jenkins. She's running for school board in Sacramento County. We've asked her to keep an audio diary as she's out campaigning. Hi, this is Mayelle Jenkins, and I'm running for a seat on the San Juan Unified School Board in Sacramento County. This week has probably been one of the toughest weeks 
it's just been a combination of really intense campaigning and having to navigate politics, but also having to be there for my family. So it's it's been quite a mix. And I haven't had a week where I've had to be such a strong advocate for myself and campaigning before and really trying to work through old networks that maybe aren't used to new candidates and particularly a female candidate of color, to be honest. And that has been tough. It means that I have to be constantly present, constantly being able to advocate for myself and to share with others why I am a strong candidate, even though I'm a new person into this field. So it's Friday afternoon. I'm sitting outside just to take a a few minute breather, a break. And I'm doing that because this Friday, I've completely hit a wall and I'm just running on fumes right now. It's been a long couple of weeks. I don't think I've had one day since mid-July where I haven't done at least three hours of campaign work and possibly some um, regular Monday through Friday work on top of it. But this week has definitely been the exception of juggling um, with my mom being in the hospital for most of the week post-surgery with um, just trying to parent particularly a teenage boy who is not too excited about the start of school. And then on top of it, recognizing that it's a competitive race and that I am one out of three women running for this office and as well as having an incumbent. And so going out into the community and looking for endorsements can sometimes be really tough because it's so competitive. So people often ask me why I'm running. And I'm running because I'm a parent. I'm a parent who's been in our district since 2007, since my oldest son Dominic started kindergarten way back then. And my youngest son August won't be graduating until 2024. I'm running because I wanna ensure that the voices of our parents are represented when it comes to decision-making. And I feel like I can do that. And I can do that even more by bringing forth the point of view of a family of color of an African-American biracial family and to bring that perspective to our changing and shifting school district. When I decided to run, it was really a family decision of really asking Dominic and August, my husband Greg, and my mom Dee if they were all in it with me. And everyone said yes. And even after I launched, we kind of, we reconvened and said, okay, are we still in it? And everyone said yes again, because the truth be told, I cannot run, and I cannot run successfully if Greg wasn't by my side supporting me and Dominic and August and my mom were contributing. This would be a nearly impossible uphill battle as a mom, as a working mom, to also campaign if I didn't have all of them at my side. You can hear more stories from first-time women candidates. Just look for The Long Run, KQED on Facebook.
This is a preschool in Santa Rosa. We were here last fall and we met Brooke Adams, a four-year-old with strawberry blonde pigtails. So get your binoculars. Brooke was diagnosed with something called Dravet syndrome. It's a kind of childhood epilepsy when she was just three months old. And like a lot of kids with this rare condition, she didn't respond to a long list of heavy-duty pharmaceutical drugs. Here's Brooke's mom, Jana Adams. She would have hour-long seizures every time we'd have to call 911 to have her ambulanced to the ER to load her up with all kinds of drugs. Until Brooke's parents discovered she responded to medical marijuana, a few doses a day to prevent seizures. And if she does have a seizure, another dose that contains THC, which is psychoactive, works in about three minutes. Yeah, it's been life-changing. When we first brought you Brooke's story, her school district had paid for her to go to that private preschool with her cannabis oil and a one-on-one nurse because federal and state laws ban cannabis on public school grounds. But Jana wanted her daughter to go to kindergarten at a public school. She's been fighting for that right, even pushing for a new state law. And as reporter Lee Romney explains, things haven't turned out the way she anticipated. I go back in August to check up on Brooke and her mom, Jana. God, a lot has happened and not happened. Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah. We knew we'd be here. We'd hope we didn't, but... You thought you might, huh? Yeah. Jana is still fighting for her daughter's right to go to public kindergarten. And it turns out there's been a lot of movement on this issue. Laws in seven other states now allow kids to take their cannabis meds at school. And California's trying something similar with JoJo's Act. Jojo Jimenez lives in San Bruno. He's 19, and he suffers from a different debilitating form of childhood epilepsy. His state senator, Jerry Hill, learned about him last year and how to get the regular cannabis tinctures that keep the teenager's seizures in check. He would have to be removed from school in a wheelchair and by law taken a thousand feet away from the school where the, uh, the drug could be administered, and then his mother would have to wheel him back to school. It didn't seem right. So Hill authored a bill that would permit California school districts to let parents or legal guardians administer cannabis meds inside school to kids who have a doctor's recommendation. But Jenna Adams says when Brooke needs her THC oil as a rescue medicine, she needs it immediately. So someone who's already at school would have to give it to her. I mean, I don't know when I'm going to have to dose her. That's the whole issue. Some kids need their cannabis meds on an unpredictable schedule. And it turns out that's a problem everywhere. Illinois had to add a last-minute amendment that also allows a designated caregiver to dispense cannabis at school. New Jersey did something similar. And early this summer, Colorado tacked Quinton's amendment onto its law. That allows school personnel to dispense the cannabis meds or designate someone who can, like a contracted nurse. Brooke needs that. But Senator Hill doesn't think that'll fly in California now. It's against federal law to have cannabis at school. That's why school administrators lobbied against his bill, out of concern that they'd lose federal funds. So for now, to avoid having Brooke homeschooled, Jenna Adams and her husband decided to take their local school district to court. That special ed hearing was held in July before a state administrative law judge to let him decide. Are you going to let a sick child take her medication so that she can go to school? Or are you going to just keep people at home? Do you like grapes? Yes, I do. Yes, I 
Back at home, the little girl spends her last days before kindergarten pulling book after book out of a bin in the living room. That's right, kindergarten. The judge issued a temporary order that let Brooke start public school with her cannabis oil and a new nurse. He hasn't made a final ruling yet. That's expected any day now. The hitch? That ruling would apply to Brooke alone. Meanwhile, JoJo's Act is on the governor's desk. He has until the end of this month to sign or veto it. If he signs it, it'll help kids who take cannabis meds on a regular schedule and who have parents who can come to school to administer them. That won't work for Brooke. You know, that bill doesn't help at all, really. Boy. There's a boy. But it would lay a foundation for Jana, who says she plans to push for an amendment that would allow Brooke's one-on-one nurse to dispense that rescue medication whenever she needs it at school. Oh, Oh, is she sleeping? There's the girl. For the California Report, I'm Lee Romney in Santa Rosa. There's a girl. She's sleeping. Oh. And just a quick update to this story. The judge in that special ed hearing just ruled in Brooke's favor. She'll be able to stay in her public kindergarten with her cannabis oil. The ruling applies to her alone. And now we're going to meet a guy who says the highlight of his week is going for a walk in the forest near Santa Cruz. Christian Schwartz is a naturalist. We talked to him for our series about how climate change has impacted people's lives in very personal and specific ways. It's called This Moment on Earth. This is Christian Schwartz's moment. My brother got a field guide to mushrooms for Christmas when we were in high school, and I thought it was the stupidest thing in the world, and it was a really rainy El Nino year, and he convinced me to go out and look for mushrooms with him, and we did, and they were everywhere, and I just couldn't stop looking at them after that. I frequently have the experience of sitting down in front of the computer for a week, and at the end of the week, I go out in the woods for a hike, and I get this flood of emotion as soon as I walk in to a forest after a week of not having done so. It's just like a delight, a weight off my shoulders and sort of a loosening that used to sound fake when people told me that. It used to sound like a cliche. And I just feel it every time now. It's gotten stronger over time as I've gotten more familiar with the organisms around me. Now when I hear a scrub jay, it's, I don't know, the millionth time that I've heard of Scrub Jay, but it's more potent than it ever was. It's comforting. It's a, a community in which I'm embedded. I'm not separate from. As far as I can tell, all it takes is exposure. I can show what I find to be fascinating or beautiful about the forest around me to someone who's never seen it before, and I usually see a response. I usually see people's eyes light up. I usually see, wow, you know, I've never seen that before. I can't believe that bug exists here on this trail, these glistening jade green Ohlone tiger beetles that live only in Santa Cruz County. And anyone who sees them and has never seen them before tends to gasp because they're iridescent metallic scurrying beetles running across the trail. But as soon as you see them, you have a different sense of that meadow, of that place. We're robbing ourselves of pleasure every time we lose an organism. Everyone would be outraged if I walked into the Louvre and just destroyed paintings on the wall. And that's what it feels like for me every time a species goes extinct. No one can ever see that painting again. No one can ever hear that song again.
Christian Schwartz sharing his perspective on climate change for our series, This Moment on Earth. And that's the California Report magazine, where a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our team includes Susie Racho, Seal Muller, Katie McMurrin, Victoria Mauleon, David Marks, Marisol Medina Cadena, Becky Hogue, Kat Snow, Katie Orr, Tyke Hendricks, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. This week, we say goodbye to two longtime members of our engineering team, Howard Gelman and Monte Carlos. They're both retiring. Monty's got radio in his DNA, and he's leaving us after 35 years. Howie never fails to make us laugh. He's leaving after 34 years and many, many days and weeks of bringing the stories you hear to life. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. B-L-A-C-H dot com. Block Construction. Together, building greatness. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.